Welcome back, listeners, for another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. We're back for another vibrant and engaging conversation with a Georgia music teacher today that I think you'll all enjoy. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues who might be interested. And if you can take a moment to leave a review, I would really appreciate it. And now, without further delay, let's get to today's conversation. We are joined by Catherine Eminette. Hello, Catherine. Hi, baby. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's get started with just the background question. Tell us a little bit about you. Uh, what do you do? Where you come from? What's your journey? Absolutely. I am a flutist and a flute teacher, and I am originally from Georgia. I grew up in Gwinnett County, and I started playing the flute when I was in the sixth grade, just like most kids. Before that, I was a pianist. My mom had me start taking piano lessons when I was in the third grade, and I really, really loved it. Um, but when it, middle school came around and there was a choice to do band or orchestra, I my parents really encouraged me to do band because they had such a positive experience in their high school and middle school band learning instruments. So at first I was a little reluctant because I loved the piano so much, but I said, eh, let's give it a shot. So I vividly remember my mom taking me to the music store and going to where the flutes were located and the uh, person who worked at the music store took the head joint out of the flute case and held it up to my bottom lip and told me how to blow and I immediately made a sound on the head joint. I didn't find out till many years later that that is actually rare to be able to get a sound on a flute head joint on the first time that you tried it. So from that moment forward I knew that I was going to be a flutist. So I started in sixth grade band at Creekland Middle School in Gwinnett County, and it was one of the first humongous band programs that existed in Gwinnett County. And I remember there being like 30 flutists in the flute section, and I was awful. Even though I got that first sound out on the head joint, I was last chair in sixth grade band for at least a semester. And I was just, I really enjoyed it, and I just was not very good. And then it wasn't until eighth grade that my parents said, huh, maybe we should start doing private flute lessons in addition to private piano lessons. So I started taking flute lessons actually with a saxophonist who doubled on a couple of other woodwind instruments. And I loved my lessons with him. Before I knew it, I was sitting first chair in the eighth grade band and I was completely hooked on flute. And I practiced a lot and I learned a lot of really cool things. I continued on in high school where I was in the marching band. I was the flute section leader in marching band. And I really, really felt like that the band program in high school was where I found myself and found out really what my desires were and um, what my focus was and my friends. I was a super shy kid all throughout school and I never really had a lot of friends because I was so quiet, but I always felt like music was my voice and that was the way that I could express myself. And then once I entered high school band, I all of a sudden had a friend group that was right there and it was super cool and I knew that that was where I fit in. Throughout high school, I did all sorts of stuff like everybody does these days, district honor band, all state band. I played in the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony or, uh, Ensemble 
um, for two years. And I played piano in that ensemble for one year, actually, and then the second year flute. And then when it came time to choose a major in college, I really had no idea. I mean, I knew I was good at music, so why not at least start in music and see what happened? And so I applied to the University of Georgia and I got in and I decided to major in music. And then of course the difficult conversation with my parents happened. You're majoring in music? Are you sure you can make a career out of that? Shouldn't you major in something like computer something or finance something or whatever? And uh, so I made a deal with them. I told them that I would major in music education because that was the safer, in quotes, major for, for musicians to have something to fall back on. I was kind of, when I made that decision, I said, you know what, I'm going to prove them wrong. If anybody can get this job and this career going in music, it's me. So I'm going to work really hard all throughout my undergraduate degree and practice really hard and um, show that I can be a performer. So I went into college and I, and I kind of had the mindset of, okay, we're going to try this out for a semester, maybe for a year. And if it's not the right fit, then we'll change. And then four years later, I had a degree in music education, <laughs> which I think happens for many of us. Throughout all that time in my undergrad, I tried to diversify myself as much as possible so that I could find a job in music when I graduated. So I did everything. I played in all of the ensembles. I was in the Redcoat Marching Band for two years. I was an intern with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. I worked at the UGA summer music camps every single summer. Um, whenever any of the co composition students needed a flute player, I was the first one that they called to just get that performing experience. I did everything and anything. Even though many of my professors said, you shouldn't really spend all of your time dedicating yourself to, to practicing, you know, you should practice five hours a day if you really want to do this. And I said, hmm, yeah, but I also want to try all these other things. And so I'm so glad that I listened to myself and I still practice hard because that's what you do in college is you need to really focus in on um, your own performance, because once you get out, as we know, you don't have that much time to focus in on your practicing. So by the time I got finished with my uh, degree at UGA, my bachelor's degree, I was kind of stuck. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I did apply for a whole bunch of master's programs while I was student teaching. Um, and the first time around, I'll be honest, I didn't get accepted anywhere because I only applied to places like Juilliard and the New England Conservatory and Peabody and all of these really, really competitive programs. But honestly, that was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me because that summer after I graduated with my undergrad, I met my future husband and I would have never met him had I gotten into one of those schools. Also, after that, I decided to take a job teaching elementary music at a elementary school in Conyers, Georgia, and I had 600 kids a week that I saw, and that is where I learned to teach. And that is also where I learned that I actually like teaching, but I did not like teaching large groups of kids. I liked more of the one-on-one. -on -one. So I was kind of stuck, decided to go back for a master's degree and to try to figure out what I wanted to do. And so when I finished my master's degree, I realized, professor, that's what I want to be. I love libraries. I love coffee. I love music. I love teaching. That is the perfect job for me. So my now husband and I moved all the way across the country to Seattle, the University of Washington, and we lived there for six years. And I got my doctorate in flute performance within three years at the University of Washington. And I loved my time there. I learned so much. 
Then again, I try to diversify myself as much as possible. I was a TA for music theory, uh, but I also worked actually with the athletic department at the University of Washington, and I tutored the athletes in all of their non-major music courses. So it was through that that I learned a whole bunch of curricula for different types of courses. I got exposed to lots of syllabi, and I just knew that all of that was going to be very helpful for me to become a professor. I also founded a summer, uh, summer flute workshop at the University of Georgia with my former professor where we had students come from all over the world in the summer for a week of intense master classes. I did international competitions. I did all the stuff that we were supposed to do in order to get that job as a professor. And so I started applying for jobs immediately and I believe I applied to 90 positions over a th three year period of time. And I, I made it to the finals three, like seven times for on-campus interviews, which was great. And for one reason or another, all of those positions did not work out for me. And honestly, looking back, that was like another really good thing that happened that seemed awful in the moment. But in hindsight, you know, it was actually a good thing. I got tired of applying to jobs, being rejected and not knowing where I was going to live in the next six months. My husband did, too. So I'm the type of person who said, you know what, if, if all I'm doing, if all, all I really want is to teach, to impact my com community and to perform. And if I can do those three things, I don't need to have a title as a professor. I can just, I, as long as I'm doing those three things, I'm gonna be happy. So my husband and I decided to move back to the Atlanta area and to start over again. And so I restarted a studio for like the millionth time. And um, within three months, I had 30 students, and I was also an adjunct professor at Georgia Gwinnett College, and I was performing and subbing in lots of regional orchestras in the area. So, and I was also on the board of the National Flute Association. So I was doing all of those things that I really wanted to do, and it looked very different from what I thought that I would end up doing. So I have continued to do those things. And these days, what I'm doing is I'm teaching my private studios down to 16 students, which is a perfect ideal number for me. Um, I am playing in orchestra still and performing quite a bit, just finished a lot of Nutcracker. <laughs> and I also founded my own online education company for musicians called KE Creative. And we teach, we have taught over 200 musicians how to start their own private studio for pre-college students to make a full-time living doing that, how to manage all of their finances, their taxes, their health insurance, and how to make a very big, deep impact on their community and be able to stand on their own two feet without having to go through a higher education institution or a professional orchestra. And so that is the work that is so meaningful to me today is to not only help continue teaching music at a very high level for my students and have them participate in international competitions, but also help the musician community throughout the world to be able to be full time musicians and do what they love to do and impact their community in the most and best way possible. So I have a couple of follow up questions and one of them goes all the way back to the beginning of your story, you talked about being able to make a sound on the head joint and that that is unusual um, to be able to do it on a first try. Why is that unusual? It's unusual because it requires a very specific type of embouchure or shape that your lips create. And many students 
are not able to achieve that immediately. It takes a lot of, you know, work or a lot of tweaking and stuff. So the fact that this music store person was just able to put the head joint up there and me blow without any instruction and get a sound out, that was very unique and unusual because most of the time that doesn't happen just because of how you have to shape your lips. With a lot of other wind instruments, you're blowing into something. And so there's at least like a little bit of resistance and you can feel kind of what you're supposed to do. But with a flute, there is no, you're blowing across something. And a lot of people are like, it's like blowing over the top of a bottle. Yeah, kind of, but not really. And so um, it was very, it was very interesting that, that I was able to do that the first try. So now you as a teacher, I'm assuming that occasionally you get beginner students who have no experience playing flute, who has never made a sound on the flute. Do you get those students that come into your studio and really struggle for a while to even create a sound on the flute? Yes. And actually at the beginning of every school year, I have about four middle schools that hire me to come out and do flute fittings for students. So most of the time you have a teacher who's in charge of all the brass instruments and then another teacher who's in charge of the woodwind instruments. And usually for flute, since band teachers know, oh my gosh, the flute is really specialized and specific for beginners, they get a flute teacher to come in to try to fit students for flutes. And so I will see over 100 kids over a four hour period of time where I'm testing them to see if it's going to be an easy fit for them from the first from the first time out. And I have a system now that I've developed of helping students learn how to create the proper embouchure and stuff. And so I will always tell them, you know, this doesn't mean you have to choose flute. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't choose flute. This is our person. This is what you're naturally inclined to do. And maybe you should try flute or maybe you should try something else to give them a little bit of more information about what they would be a good fit for or not. And then for students that I have that I teach as beginners, yes, I have taught so many students where it can take two months to get a really solid, good sound just on the head joint. And it can be so frustrating for them and for me as their teacher. But what we what I've discovered is for each student, as long as we break it down into bite-sized steps and we can really see exactly what they're doing and the things they need to be thinking about to get that sound, if we can do that and build upon that every week, it makes it less frustrating and it makes it way more fun and all of that, but it can take a while. I have definitely started students that it took a while, but you know, there's even one student I teach currently now, she's in the eighth grade. She was one of those students who really struggled a lot um, in order to get that sound out, but she's made all state band in seventh grade and that's pretty unusual. So she's very talented, one of the best, most talented um, middle schoolers, I think in the state on flute, but she struggled and then we figured it out. And so it's just a process. Hmm, that's really interesting. So then also you talked about your parents being just a little hesitant about a career in music. What do they think about your career now? They're very proud of me. They think I work very hard. They think that I probably work too hard. But, you know, honestly, that's their fault because I watched them growing up and they always worked very hard in their jobs and their careers. And that's where I got it from. Um, but they're they're very proud of me. They, they think it's amazing what I do and the level of playing that my students have. They say to me always like, you're doing everything that we wish you could have had now that we know, you know, now that we know you're doing everything that we wish you would have had as a middle and high school student. Not that my private teachers were bad. They were wonderful. They inspired me a, a lot, but I just take it up a notch with, with my private students. I'm basically teaching them like I would a college studio 
and doing all the things that you do in, in a college studio, but they're like 12 years old. <laughs> That's great. And then lastly, you talked about starting this company uh, that guides young professionals. What what does that look like? Like, do they sign up for online sessions? Is it one-on-one -on -one kind of mentorship, consulting work? And how long does it last? Is it just like a couple of sessions or is it a year long? Can you describe that? Absolutely. So um, when I started this company about five years ago, it started with one online course that was called the Music Teacher's Playbook. And the Music Teacher's Playbook is a course that I designed that walks um, young professionals through everything that you need to know to start or elevate a private studio. So everything, all of the marketing education that you need to have as a musician and you do need to have a marketing education as a musician that's not something we're taught in music school and i had to learn all this stuff the hard way through doing it but i've got a total system now where i teach musicians how to do that so in the course it's divided up into recruiting things website design all the way through like creating your studio documents, which is more than a policy. You have to have waivers and stuff. And I've worked with an attorney to draft a whole bunch of those that I share with the people as samples. We go through program design. I run a summer camp for my own private students. And I talk through the, the whole system of creating a summer camp, even a studio ensemble, if you wanna create a studio ensemble and all of the wonderful things that you can do to make your private studio be a very much full-time job that provides a full-time income, honestly, more than some full-time professors make, as well as creating that big impact in your community and honestly feeling confidence in yourself that you're running a business, that you have something to say and that you have something to teach and that you know how to do it. So the course, the way the course is laid out is it's some pre-recorded sessions with nuts and bolts material like taxes and all that. And then we have live coaching calls that we do a couple of times a month where you're able to work with me and my team and troubleshoot and dig through everything. And we help with everything from how to reply to specific emails, how to pitch certain things for to try to find students, how to have difficult conversations with parents, all of that kind of stuff. So it's a year long program because we really want to make sure that you have that we're on your side, that we are there to help you create this business basically for yourself. Um, so that's one, that's the major thing that we do. And we've had over 200 musicians from all over the world participate in it. And they're so, it's so great. I just saw one the other day playing in the orchestra and she was like, you know, it's because of your class that I'm able to have a full-time job and not have to work at Starbucks. And I mean, comments like that is just like amazing to, to hear that from people, highly skilled musicians who have graduate degrees and doctorates who are able to stand on their own two feet and do what they love all day every day um so that's it's super great we have lots of other things that we do too we have one-off classes about specific topics so for example we had a whole class about you know getting started for the school year and making sure you have your policies ready and your calendar ready and things to think about and getting restarted for the for the next school year um, we also do free things um, in my Facebook group called Classical Musicianeer, and it's a Facebook group for people who are who are like me, who are musicianeers. They're engineering their own career, right? So we have um, monthly meetups there where we have different topics. So it could be about like 
what did we learn from this past year? What are things that we're going to leave in the past? And what new things are we going to introduce in our career in 2023? Or how to figure out which gigs to say yes to, which gigs to say no to, any type of troubleshooting that that people need, or just to have a community of like-minded people. Because I feel like a lot of times as a musicianer, you feel very isolated because you're not going into a university building every day, seeing people who speak your same language. Most of the time you're at your house, in your home, in your office, and you feel very alone and like maybe you're the only one. So we have those meetups in classical musicianer so that musicians from all over the world can get together and basically talk shop and feel like and ask for advice or ask for help from myself and my team as well as other musicianers. We do that. I do a free thing on Instagram first Tuesday of every month called Teaching Tip Tuesday. It's like an advice column for music teachers. So you just submit your question. It's like an Ask Abby thing, uh, like an advice column thing. And I go live in Classical Musicianer and I answer the questions um, just to have some support for, for music teachers. Uh, we also do a thing called the Music Teacher Monthly, which is a, a paid newsletter that includes very creative activities for your lessons, for any sectional work that you do, for group bonding or studio activities or parties, as well as a principle that is written out in kid language, kid-friendly language, so that you can inject that music history, music theory, world music, cultures, different things into your lessons without having to sit down and write it all out. It's done for you. And you just send it out to your students and they and ask them about it in their next lesson. So we do lots of things to support music teachers and to teach them the ropes, as well as, you know, musicians who are out there trying to start an ensemble or people who are interested in getting plugged into the to the freelance scene in their community. Yeah, I love that entrepreneurial kind of innovative spirit that you have. So it really seems like from your story that you knew that music was your path, was your your life's calling quite early on. Do you remember what piece from your musical studies as a child got you hooked on music? Yeah, it was very interesting. I remember vividly, I was in middle school and I was still very much in piano land, right? And so I remember my mom was gone many weekends um, to take care of her mother who lived in South Carolina, who was suffering from Alzheimer's disease. And so it was my dad and I that were at home. And I remember um, on those weekends, in order to help my mom out, I would clean our house. You know, I would, nobody would ask me to do it. I just clean it. So I remember vividly putting Beethoven piano sonatas <laughs> CD into the CD player and cranking it up and listening to um, a whole bunch of different Beethoven piano sonatas as I would clean our house and just being so mesmerized by the the beauty of it and the complexity yet simplicity of of many of of the different piano sonatas and then I'd move over to some Beethoven symphony CD and try that out and just the huge sound of the orchestra was just so cool to me and um, to this day Beethoven's still my favorite composer even though he didn't write anything for the flute but from those early days of being in middle school and trying to help my mom out and um, just running around the house cleaning with Beethoven cranked up. Um, I feel like that that was really inspiring and, and made me want to be able to make that music on my own. Mm, that's great. And was there someone who was particularly influential or maybe a group of people that was influential in guiding you to this professional musician's path? Yeah, I mean, I think that like most musicians, my music teachers, my private music teachers and my large ensemble teachers were so influential and it's nothing really that they said or they did 
no, it was just like a just just how they were just the just the atmosphere that they created for students how invested they were for in their students and the whole world that they that they made it made me feel like I was special and that I was a part of a special club that spoke a, a certain language and that I belong somewhere. And so I think it was, I think it was all of that that kind of came together for me to create this world that made me decide that this is what I wanted to do. And it really sounds like you're doing that for your students and your studio and your, even your entrepreneurial community that you have built up. So that's wonderful. Um, what are some challenges you have encountered as a musician? Oh, yes. So I feel like that, you know, you have to be tough to be a musician. You have to be very dedicated to what you do. And, you know, honestly, even when I talk to my students about majoring in music, a lot of the conversation revolves around it's going to be hard. You're going to see your friends after you graduate, get their own apartment, get their own car, be able to go out to eat, be able to go shopping, and you're going to be living with your parents and you're not going to be able to do a lot of that stuff. You have to love music and love this career path so much that you're willing to do that and 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 see that. And so for me, the, the challenges that I, I had lots of challenges. I think the first challenge we all face is, as musicians is what the heck am I going to do in this profession? And I think in a lot of traditional music education, we're given two options, either be an orchestral musician or soloist or teach at a university. And that these days is not a viable career path for all of the the numbers of music students who are studying music in colleges and universities. So I think that that was the first big challenge that I faced was I know I don't want to teach public school. I know that I love playing in the orchestra, but I don't want to do that in full time. And it's just so impossible and so hard to get into a university to teach in higher education. And a lot of times it doesn't end up being as great as we think it is, to be honest. And so I've really felt that that was a huge hurdle as I was navigating my way through, like, what the heck am I going to do with this degree? So luckily, since I had gathered so many experiences, I was able to create something for myself and be able to figure that out, which was not easy. It sounds easy when I tell you my story, but when going through it, it was not easy at all to, to figure it out. And so took a lot of help with mentors and teachers and my family to help me figure that out. Another thing that was a huge challenge was getting so many rejections. We're very used to getting rejections as musicians because we audition all the time. But once you receive so many, it really makes you start doubting if you're worthy enough to pursue this professionally. Am I good enough? Do I sound good enough? Is my playing at the best level? Is there something wrong with my teaching? So it makes you have a lot of self-doubt with all of those re rejections. So that was a huge challenge for me, too. The other huge challenge was moving all the way across the country and having to start from scratch and having to build my own studio and not knowing anyone and not knowing anyone in the network and having to figure all that out for myself before there was anything like what my team and I do with providing musicians with the know-how of how to do that. So those were some, some really big challenges for sure that I, I faced as a musician. And then obviously like the day-to-day -day challenges of organizing an insane schedule and, you know, figuring out, figuring out when to do what. And, and cause there's, as an entrepreneur, there's no one telling you what to do. You have to tell yourself what to do. So that's a daily challenge. Yeah. And then can you describe your journey as a teacher? How have you changed who or what have been your key influences? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I didn't, I didn't like kids in undergrad, you know, I was like, why am I majoring in music education? I don't like kids. And so as I, as I went through my degree program, I, I started noticing that I really liked the elementary school age kids because I love storytelling. I love imagination. I love being creative, which is why my company is called KE Creative. And so I really kind of bonded with that age group, which is why I chose to go into elementary music. So when I, so I thought I was going to be an elementary music teacher, at least try it. And so once I got in there, like I said, I had those 600 kids a week and I discovered that I really liked teaching. I just didn't like teaching large groups. So that was my first big change to kind of steer me back towards one-on-one. -on -one. When I started doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one teaching, which I've done since I was 18 years old, I've always taught private lessons. At first, I was very much thinking I needed to be a traditional teacher, that we needed to do tone, technique, etudes, repertoire, a little bit of theory, a little bit of history. And we were going to be do it right. And, and you will practice and you will do all this stuff and you will do all these things. And so I started realizing, you know what, that's not really working for me and that's not working for my students. So over the years, I've had to change my approach to teaching in a way that students are still practicing, they're still getting better, but establishing some type of that intrinsic motivation for them to want to do that and for them to be excited about it. And for me to be uh, as helpful as I can be as a teacher to meet every single student exactly where they are and to give them the type of material to practice and learn that's going to get them the furthest and the easiest way possible and the most fun way possible. Because if you make a memory or if you make something interesting for a student, chances are they're going to remember it. Chances are that's going to make their, their uh, performance level higher and it's going to make them love it even more. I've really transitioned a lot to a new and innovative way of teaching versus the very, very traditional way of teaching. As far as my key influences, um, all of I've learned stuff from all of my teachers, obviously. I learned so much from the amazing band directors that I work with when I go in to teach sectionals. I found a group of band teachers in my area who share a similar teaching philosophy as me. And so when I teach their students and I go, go into their programs and I talk with them, and hearing what they think about certain things, it's just super cool to, to hear that other people think the same thing and that we're all working together in order to get students to enjoy music and become lifelong lovers of music and to put in the work to do that. I also shadowed a great private teacher in Seattle. Her name is Bonnie Blanchard, and she's written a couple of books about private teaching. She's wonderful. And she was the first person who showed me, hey, your private lessons don't have to look like one-on-one -on -one 30 minute lessons where you cover band music. You can do a lot more with your students. And so I saw that and it just blew my mind. And so I've taken that and run with it. And so my students do four recitals a year, two solo, two chamber. They're playing college level repertoire. They play concerti with orchestras. We have a full summer camp that we do in the summertime. We have studio parties. We go to, we just went to a retirement home to play for other people. So they're out in the community doing great work and they want to do those things. They, they know how important it is to share their talents with others and how important it is for them to perform. Because honestly, if they're not gonna major in music, this is the only performing they're gonna do in their life. And I want them to get out there and learn how to do it as much as possible so that when they hear other musicians in, in their life and they become patrons, they can have an appreciation for it. 
So you talked about nurturing the uh, intrinsic motivation in students rather than really kind of like drilling down and forcing them to practice. That seems like, I mean, it seems like that's what every music teacher wants to do, but it's so difficult. Do you ever come across a student where it just, it doesn't lock in and it doesn't seem like anything you do, it even though it seems to you it should be fun, it's not fun for them. What do you do then? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So over the years of doing this, what I have determined is the first thing that has to happen before we get to that point is when I am starting a student in lessons that I am very clear about what expectations are and what I am looking for in a student and in that student's family. And I think as a music teacher, you develop a certain student type that you work the best with. And so it's very important that you establish what that is from the very beginning. So for me, I'm looking for students who are happy-go-lucky, who are positive, who love music and are like those kids who are on YouTube all the time looking at flute videos, you know, like band is their favorite thing and they love it. They don't have to be excellent, by the way. They don't have to be great performers. I don't, I don't mind that at all. Like I want them to have that feeling of like, I love music. This is the thing that I, I love doing and I love participating in and that they're going to participate in all of the activities that I offer for them and that they're gonna practice and at least put in some effort for practicing. That is all very written out clearly in my studio policy. And so when I have a student who comes in for the their first lesson, I review that first lesson. I talk to the parents about it. I talk about how we're a team with that and that, that this is something that I require because you know you have to practice and i'm going to make it as fun as interesting as possible and if we start seeing that this is not fun for you we're going to have a conversation about it and see what's going on with it and it's okay if it's not fun if you don't want to do it anymore that's totally fine but we need to be open and honest about it so what i found is setting that expectation from the very beginning really nips a lot of that in the bud so when it makes it a lot easier for me to help them with that intrinsic motivation for things the second thing that I do to help with this is I have every student who starts with me a give them a three month probationary period. So during that three months, I'm auditioning them and their parent and they're auditioning me basically just make sure that we're a good fit. I want to make sure that that student's going to fit in with the rest of my, my studio because I'm all about community and having it be like a cool club for, for students to be part of. And I want that parent to realize I'm serious about what I do. I'm not messing around. <laughs> and if this is too intense for you, that's okay. I, we can figure somebody else to go study with, or you can, I can give you, you know, go take some trial lessons with some other folks. That's totally fine. We got to make sure that we're, we're right. And most of the time within that three month period of time, we're usually pretty good and we get started very well. After that, obviously the newness wears off right and so then the practicing might slide and so what i the reason why i have students do four concerts a year minimum is because they always need a goal to work towards a lot of that intrinsic motivation comes from having that goal to work towards so if they're not getting up and performing something pretty regularly then they're not going to want to practice because they won't have anything to practice for and there's no real reason to practice other than to please your teacher to please your parents or you know just to have fun so 
even with that, if there's still a lack of intrinsic motivation, then something I do lots of different challenges with my students in, in games and stuff. So for example, for the new year, we're doing an A2 challenge. So what that's going to look like is depending on the level, they're going to have a certain assignment per week. So if they're if they're in high school and they're playing like college level repertoire, it'll be one A2 a week, right? If they're babies, then it might be a couple pages of their method book a week. And whatever we determine it is going to be and I have this huge glass container that's in the shape of an owl because I love owls that's one of our studio mascots. And for every A2 that they pass off they're going to write their name on a piece of paper and put it in the owl jar. And so whoever has so the more they have in there, then the better their odds are going to be because at our next recital which is going to be in March our chamber ensemble recital we're going to have a raffle and students are going to get to win all sorts of cool prizes things like even coupons for like only play duets in my lesson, you know, where they can use it anytime, like if they didn't practice or something and they want to have a free lesson to do that. Or Dr. E, they call me Dr. E. Dr. E takes me out for sushi, you know, or it could be something like a Amazon gift card, or it could be like a cool flute something or, a, or a, like a movie book full of Disney solos or whatever. And so we do those different types of fun challenges so that they're getting rewarded for their practice, but not necessarily like you get a sticker, you know, it's going to be something, something cool like that. If that doesn't work, we do all sorts of things like set up practice schedules or I will send them motivational text messages through the week. If I know that their last week was hard on practice, I'll check in on them. And just knowing somebody who is there who cares about what you're doing, that can that can mean a lot. And and knowing that, you know, you're doing your work, you want to reach the school and you're doing your work is is really huge so there's not one great answer for how to learn how to intrinsically motivate students it really depends on the student but those are a couple things that i do in general to help with that whole procedure yeah i love hearing those nuggets and ideas from different teachers so i so appreciate you sharing that with us i think you've started touching on this but how do you approach teaching what is your teaching philosophy yeah absolutely so my teaching philosophy is that it is very important that we give everything we can to students. If we can create a world for them where they are excellent at music and we provide for them opportunities that allow them to excel, then we should. There's no reason to not. So my my teaching job is 360. I mean, it is a very, very well-rounded. Like I said, my students, when they graduate from my studio, they have a year of college level music theory under their belt, a year of college level music history. They know about world music and different cultures and all of that. And they're, they're very much well-rounded in those academic aspects. By the time that they leave me, I want them to have placed in something from an audition. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be their school band that they got a high chair in, could be their all-state band, could be a youth ensemble, whatever. I want them to do something like that. I want them to be playing college-level repertoire. I want them to have played a Mozart concerto for memory on a recital with accompaniment. So I have these different things that are key for me as a teacher that I want to make sure that they get before they graduate from my studio. And honestly, those those things for most at least flute teachers are not very common throughout to, to do those different things to 
you know, really make make this a thing, a big part of a student's life and show them how accomplished they are um, in, in achieving these particular goals. So it's my job to, I feel like creating experiences for students that create those memories. And if you create a memory, it's gonna last them forever and they're gonna remember it forever. I, I really am about that. But I also really talk a lot with my students about lots of mindset things. I use music as a vehicle to teach them how to be a good citizen and a good human to really, you know, allow them the space to open up about what's going on in their life. I am not a licensed therapist and that is not my role, but we do know that we are get really close to our music teachers because you know, they're outside of our parent, outside of their parents, we're probably the only people, the only adults that they see one on one. And so that's a very special relationship and to use that as a support for students. So I really believe in going full circle with students. It's more than just flute lessons is what I always say. It is a community. It is a full on education where they're out in their community and they're learning how to how to do things. And they know that it's special to be part of our studio. They know that that is that is cool. And, you know, I mean, it spreads. I mean, knowing that this is a thing that is a high achieving studio that we do all these fun, cool things like in December, for example, I had my students sit with me in the pit next to me for a nutcracker and you know they they might never go into music but i bet you they're going to remember that forever and the next time they hear an orchestra or go to see the nutcracker they're going to remember sitting in the pit with a professional orchestra next to their teacher so i think it is so important for us to create those opportunities for students to make those memories and to really um, develop that appreciation for music as a profession yeah, it seems like you invest totally into your student. And so your student can't help but invest back into music and into you really in return. So you seem like someone who always has like tons of things going on. But what are some musical or pedagogical projects that you're currently working on? Yeah, absolutely. So right now for, for in my studio, we're doing a unit on ornamentation because December, Christmas tree ornaments, great time to work on ornamentation because it's thematic. So we actually have a studio bear, one of those gigantic Costco bears um, that my husband gave me for my birthday one year. And I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? So I dress up the bear, his name is Sam, into different costumes, depending on what we're talking about. So this month for December, it's ornamentation. So he's dressed up like a Christmas tree ornament. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram. You'll see a picture of it. It's pretty hilarious. And so right now I'm having everyone learn the correct trill fingerings for a lot of the music that I know that they're going to have to play. So for example, Leroy Anderson's Sleigh Ride, right? That There's a whole part in there that has trills in it for flutes. And a lot of students learn the wrong trill fingerings. They don't look up the trill fingerings on a trill chart. So I'm having them go through that right now and make sure they learn the right trill fingerings as well as getting faster with grace notes and not having to think as much um, when they approach those. So we're doing that right now. We're going to do the the uh, etude challenge in the next couple of months and where I'm writing out lots of different sight reading examples and rhythms for students um, to prepare them for their all state audition, which is also coming up. So we're that's what we're really working on right now. 
as far as the other side of things with teaching teachers, um, my team and I are working on revamping our course, the music teachers playbook to make it very all encompassing and to give it a little bit of a facelift. We do that every single year to include things like online learning or to include um, new and different things that we've discovered in our own teaching over the over the years and to really make sure that it is really spot on for now and for what um, teachers are experiencing now. So those are two huge projects that we are that I'm working on right now with my studio and also for the other business. That's great. Those projects sound like so much fun, especially that ornament project for your students. What a clever yeah. approach to that. What aspects of your life and career as a musician has surprised you? How does it measure up to the life you envisioned for yourself as a young musician? Yeah, I mean, I, I if you would have asked me when I was 20 years old, if if I could see myself doing what I'm doing right now, I would say absolutely not. I would have never imagined myself doing what I'm doing right now. I'm extremely introverted and being uh, an entrepreneur requires not being introverted. It requires being very confident in what you're doing and what you believe in. And I was just so shy and introverted for so long and still am, honestly, except when I'm talking about this stuff, then that's the only time when I'm not. So I would have said no. Owning two businesses and, you know, teaching a full studio and having a waiting list of over 30 kids who want to take lessons with me and, you know, emails all the time for different classes and speaking engagements or whatever, I would have never thought that. I more imagined myself being the person working in the library, checking out books to people, you know, or being a music librarian and erasing a whole bunch of stuff on parts in a room by myself. So I would have never imagined that at all. So just the fact that where my career has taken me, that has, that's been a huge surprise. And then the other thing that has surprised me too is about when I do speak with musicians and all the musicians I've worked with, there's so many themes that pop up that most musicians feel, but they feel like they're the only one. So things like doubting yourself or you're doubting your doubting the your teaching ability or doubting your ability to actually create something for yourself and really, really wanting to go the safe route or, or feel like that you have to get a job uh, with a title or else you're not a worthy professional musician. Um, so that has been something that's been very interesting is to see how many musicians feel that way and also to be able to help them see that no, every single person has a special gift and special talent that they can give to the world. You do not have to fit in a box. You can definitely create your own career and watching so many people actually do that has been so cool so validating i think for for musicians to be able to evolve the classical music world from what we were taught in school yeah so earlier you were talking about being an introvert and uh being kind of surprised at what you're doing right now uh, and not expecting it as a young musician how did you break out of your introvert shell into basically it seems like you talk for a living. I mean, obviously you play and you perform and you do music, but you really just talk about music. And so how, how did that transition happen? Yeah. So the first thing that had to happen was when I decided to stop applying for jobs in higher education, I had to be a hundred percent committed to being okay with that. So I had to make sure in my own brain, okay, Catherine, you're walking away from this that used to be your dream for a long time. 
and you're going to do this other thing. And the reason why you're doing this other thing is because this, 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 and you have to be 100% committed to that. You have to be okay with people, you know, maybe doubting your level of teaching or performing because you're not at a university. You have to be okay in, with that. And you have, to, you have to show people that you're a valid musician and you don't suck at the flute, <laughs> even without having that title. Um, and so that was kind of the first big thing that I had to just be a thousand percent confident in. And of course, I mean, I went through a time for about six months where I actually like grieved walking away from having a job in higher education. But here's the interesting thing. The interesting thing was, is as soon as I did that, and I started really dedicating myself to, to building this thing that I built. I actually started getting asked to take jobs in higher education. I started to get recruited for jobs. I didn't have to go through an interview process or anything. People would call me up and ask me if I was interested in a position. And, you know, honestly, I said no to, I've said no to all of them so far because they don't pay enough and it's too many responsibilities and duty, duties for the pay. And you know what, what I'm doing right now is super great and it pays better than those positions would. And I feel like I'm making a big impact in my community. So it's really cool to be able to look back and be like, yeah, that was, that was a really good choice that I made for myself. It's not everybody's right choice for sure, but for me, it was a really good choice to do that. And so that's very validating to know that, okay, my introverted self who was so scared about doing something different, that that was the right thing to do. Another thing that I did is I started working with a business coach and she helped me see, she, she ripped the bandaid off basically of all the self-doubt and putting yourself out there and marketing stuff that musicians are terrified of. No, you have to do this. You're doing this, write this post and send it to me and, and we're putting it out into the world. And if somebody poo-poos your post, like on social media, that's okay because they're entitled to their opinion, but you're also entitled to your opinion, especially if it helps other people. So working with a coach has been awesome, which is why I am a coach for musicians now to be able to dig out all of that information and all of that stuff that they have inside of themselves and to be able to show them that they are gold and that they can go and make a career for themselves, despite a lot of self-doubt and questioning. And then beyond that, just constantly, you know, putting ideas out there into the world through social media or blog posts or interviews like this. And then having people come back to me and saying, oh my gosh, what that, that post really resonated with me. Or I'm so glad you're talking about these things or talking about teaching in this way. It's so refreshing. And so just getting that feedback and that validation has really helped me be able to say, okay, stop being scared. You're making a difference in the world. Keep doing it. Yeah, it seems like to me, the nugget that stuck out just now in your recounting of your transformation is the fact that you thought to seek out a business coach. I mean, I'm a professional musician and I talk to a lot of musicians and a lot of my colleagues are professional musicians, but I don't know that I've ever met a musician that thought to themselves, you know, I'm going to seek out a business coach. Like, yeah. Someone point that out to you or did it just pop into your head and you're like, this is something that I need? No, um, it was, I participated in like a challenge online, a free challenge for musicians. And I was like, so mind blown that I reached out to someone and I said, this, you know, this was really stuck out to me. Can we have a conversation? And we had a conversation and then I worked with a, a, a coach, you know, for a while 
and honestly, the reason why I stuck, I, I did a business coach was because I don't need another private lesson. I don't need another audition coach. I don't need somebody to teach me how to play the flute better or how to take an audition better or how to apply for a job better. I needed someone who was going to teach me some real world skills that I needed to know in order to propel, propel my career forward because that was the thing that was missing. Every single musician is a business owner. It doesn't matter if you're at a university or if you're a private teacher or if you're a freelancer, you are your own business. So it made complete and total sense for me to say, I need a business coach because I am a business. <laughs> I am my own brand. You know, I, I need, to, if I'm going to try to, you know, make this, this life work and these two businesses work, I need to learn some skills that I don't have. I can teach the flute in and out all day long. I can talk about music all day long. I need someone who's going to teach me how to put this information into a vehicle that can help other people and get the word out about this. And so from doing that and just experiencing it myself, was like, okay, yes, the whole musician world needs this information. And so combine my own personal experiences of figuring it out, plus what I learned from investing thousands of dollars into business coaching and online courses about marketing and running a small business, I'm able to package that in a way that musicians can understand it and can execute on it immediately um, in order to, to grow their own careers and stuff. And so that's why it was so meaningful for, to me to, to do that. Yeah, I think that that step was incredibly insightful of you to know that that was the right step to take. So that's great. I'm interested to hear your answer to this next question. What do you see should be the future and role of classical music in society going into the 21st century? Yeah. Okay, so this is a big one. So I think that it comes from a couple of different angles. I think it comes from the general population of how it should look for the general population. I think it comes from how it should look at academia. And I think it comes and how it should look for music education. So in the general population, I think that what many musicians need to start thinking about is how can I make my services interesting to people who are not interested in classical music? How can I loop them in? What are some different ways that I can look at my audience and make this interesting to them? I always tell the people that I work with, you know, if we can make classical music like how football is for most Americans, we would be golden. You know, how can we make it so interesting and exciting that people are flocking to either performances or immersive experiences? So what that takes is that takes thinking outside of what I call the classical music bubble. Now, the bubble is the place where we're all in right now, which is where you go to music school and then, you know, there's certain rules or certain pieces that you learn how to have to learn how to play and then you go out and you give performances and you play the certain repertoire that you have to and all of that is fine and great and good. But in order for us to make a big impact, we have to start thinking like how our audience is thinking, not playing pieces that we want to play or the things that we think we should play but thinking about what the audience would be interested in and how can we make what we do impact them in a, in a very particular way. So the musicians that I work with, that's what we do, is we make a whole long list of things that they're interested in, and then we go out and I have them interview normal people, <laughs> non-musician people, and see what they're interested in. 
So I think to propel classical music into the 21st century and to still have an audience, we need to stop thinking about the stuff that has been that has been the same for hundreds of years and either start playing new things differently or start asking our audience what do they want or start figuring out a way to make the stuff that we love interesting to everybody else. So that is a, that is a huge thing and there's not an easy answer for that, but some things, you know, that would be great to see is musicians talking from the stage about their piece, about their life, about what this music that they're playing means to them. Storytelling is a key aspect because people love stories. People love hearing about, you know, like if I were still a pianist and played a Beethoven sonata, I would stand up on the stage and tell my story about how I cleaned the house and cranked up my Beethoven sonatas on a CD while my mom was taking care of her mother who had Alzheimer's disease. People love that because that's human, that connects them. No one is interested in seeing a performer just walk out on the stage silently, take a bow, sit down, play a piece, get clapped for and walk off the stage. That is not personal. People love personal connections with musicians. So making music more human, more interesting and providing a way that people can connect with it is one way that I think musicians need to evolve in general, be thinking more about the audience than thinking about us practicing a lot and giving the most perfect performance we can. It's not about that. It's about connecting with the audience and making an impact or a memory. As far as music education goes, I think it's really important that whether it's in a school music program or if it's in private lessons, teaching environment, that that is where we need to give students their big musical experiences. We need to expand what they do because chances are they're not going to be a professional musician. And in order to get people to be interested in going to classical music performances in the future, you have to instill that in them. So just like I said, students sitting in the pit with a nutcracker with me, every time when they grow up and they take their family to their nutcracker, they're going to remember that. They're going to tell their kids about how they got to sit in the pit in the orchestra and how cool that was when they were 15 years old. So for music education, it's going to be all about giving them their full high level music education experience and information and knowledge, uh, making it fun and interesting for them so that they will become the patrons for classical music later on in the future. And as far as higher education goes in academia, I think it's very important that we start blending all the, the stuff we've been taught for 200 years, which is still valid and important. But we also need to blend in project based learning with that where students for for their final exam, instead of playing a jury, perhaps they come up with a performance opportunity that they create for themselves, where they learn how to pitch, they learn pricing, they learn audience engagement. They learn all of those things because that is what they're going to do when they step out of that music school. And if they want to make a living, they need to have that knowledge of how to do all those things or how to reach out and market themselves for lessons or performances or anything, really. Um, so I think that that is what needs to happen for this new thing. Now, I see a lot of colleges and universities who are offering entrepreneurship programs, which I think is excellent. I think it's a step in the right direction. Um, I think something that's really important is some type of mentorship for students with a person who is an entrepreneur, not necessarily a professor who doesn't have any entrepreneur experience, but someone who's literally out there doing that thing so that that student can see how it works in real time, not just read this book and report back to me on what you learn, but they need to go out there and they need to start doing those things as soon as possible so that they can determine what they like, what they don't like, if this is the path for them or not. 
That's wonderful. Thank you so much for that very thorough and complete answer. Now, I feel like this whole podcast episode has been about advice for young professionals, but do you have any advice for young musical professionals and teachers as they embark on their careers and enter professional life? Yes, absolutely. I think the biggest thing is to really use the time in school to explore what you like. Gather as many experiences as you can. Learn about arts administration. Learn about social work. Learn about education. Every single professional musician, it has to be a performer, has to be a teacher, has to be a business owner. So you have to develop all of those skills because you're not going to only ever just do one thing. You're always going to have to wear multiple hats. And that's okay because it keeps it interesting. No two days of mine look the same. It is always something different. It is always something cool and unique and different. And it's always something that requires one of those three skill sets. So I think is gathering as many experiences as you possibly can to see what you like and see what you don't like. That's a hugely important thing. Reach out for help from your mentors. Don't be scared. Send questions to people who are out there doing the thing that you want to do. People like me, I get messages from people all the time asking for advice about different things, and I am happy to pay it forward. I'm happy to offer my opinion or advice or whatever on anything that someone is facing. So don't be scared to reach out for help or ask if you can shadow someone or ask if you can volunteer your services to help someone with a music festival or whatever, if that's something that you want to learn about. So gather those experiences and ask for help because most musicians are thrilled to help the next generation learn how to do the stuff because they know how hard it is. Catherine, this has been a really wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed how comprehensive your answers are, how, how articulate you are, and what a strong advocate you are for music and for other musicians. I, I don't know if you know, but while you were talking, I've been just taking tons of notes, and it's just sparked other ideas that I didn't even think about. And so thank you so much for your innovative and creative approach to this career. I hope that our listeners will enjoy this conversation as much as I have. And with that, I wish you happy teaching and happy students.